Much like somebody madly checking items off their holiday shopping list, the government has wrapped up some business before heading out of town. Congress managed to temporarily fund the government without shutting it down, and President Trump signed the $1.5 trillion tax cut bill. I said that the bill would be on my desk before Christmas, and you are holding me literally to that, so we did a rush job today. It's not fancy, but it's the Oval Office. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. But there is a lot left undone, especially when it comes to making longer-term decisions about what we, as a country, spend money on. Immigration, disaster aid, and health care, to name a few. And so that is where we're going to start today. Because Congress also passed a short-term measure to give some federal funding to CHIP, the Joint Federal and State Children's Health Insurance Program. Long-term funding expired at the end of September, and many state programs don't have much money left. Almost 9 million kids use CHIP. Their families make too much to qualify for Medicaid but can't easily afford insurance. We're going to look at one state, Alabama. One in eight Alabama kids is on CHIP. Before this stopgap funding, Alabama was about to have to kick kids off the program starting February 1st. They've gotten a reprieve, but things are still tenuous. We called the Alabama Department of Public Health, and the head of their children's health insurance department, Kathy Caldwell, told us, quote, It's kicking the can just a few weeks, but I have to admit, it's better than nothing. We wanted to understand the effects on kids. So we called Marsha Rollerson, a pediatrician in rural Bruton, Alabama. Ten percent of her patients use CHIP. I spoke with her before the short-term funding was approved, and I asked about whether the families she sees have other insurance options besides CHIP. I've had families tell me that if they tried to get insurance through their job with family coverage, it would be as much as $600 a month. They also have very high co-pays. In fact, I'd say the kids who get the worst care in my area are the ones who have co-pays of $40 or upwards. Mm. Because if the child gets sick, the parent has to say, well, do I have an extra $40 to pay the doctor today? And what if I get a prescription? Maybe I can just watch my child for a few days. The state told us that, that, you know, if there is no more funding, some of these kids would get a sort of certificate that they are coverable and would be able to to go to Blue Cross. Of the families you see, would they be um, financially able to do that? No. No. Right up front, I can tell you no. So what would you say to members of Congress when the House and the Senate can't seem to agree on putting more money in this program? What are you thinking of? What is more important? What is more important in our country than the health of our kids? And and the future of our country depends on children getting what they need. Dr. Rollerson, what happens uh, to to your clinic and offices? Alabama is not a wealthy state and probably does not have the revenue to make up any loss of federal funding. Well, what worries me the most right now is our rural hospital We have a rural hospital that serves a large population in this part of lower Alabama, and they're right on the edge of going under. As far as my office is concerned, I'm a semi-retired pediatrician now. I care for only children with high-risk conditions. Already, I can't pay my bills. Does that mean you're dipping into your own pocket? Oh, yes. I have been dipping into my own pocket for quite a while mostly because my patients are predominantly Medicaid patients and the reimbursement is not great. Um, Plus, I try to spend a lot of time with high-risk children. 
and I can't imagine what's going to happen. You know, one of the arguments we hear is that these kids, while they may be on chip or on all kids, uh, make too much money or their families make too much money to, to qualify for Medicaid. Why do you think that the state and the federal government have an obligation to insure them? Well, if we don't take care of our children, then we're going to have sicker adults. There's a lot of research now that shows that what happens in the first three to four years of life impacts the health of adults. But I think we have a moral obligation in our country to take care of our children. Children didn't ask to be born. Children don't ask to be sick. They're just doing the best that they can and want to be happy. And we have a moral ethical obligation to take care of our children. That was Dr. Marsha Rollerson. But there's another side to this issue. Is the government obligated to take care of all needy children? And if you answer no, where do you draw the line? Naomi Lopez-Bauman directs healthcare policy at the Goldwater Institute, a libertarian think tank. Welcome. Thank you. Should children have their own separate government-backed insurance program? It really does not make a lot of sense to have children under a separate policy from their families. You might have multiple family members in completely different policies. And we want to be subsidizing only the people who actually need that coverage. I mean, I think one of the great ironies of this, right, is that CHIP grew out in many ways of the of the failure to pass some sort of health care reform in the Clinton administration in its early days. And it seemed like politicians of all stripes could say, well, OK, kids are good. We agree on insuring kids. Well, I do think that while this program did enjoy broad bipartisan support, you know, I think that there is a national consensus that we do want a vibrant and robust safety net for those who are the most vulnerable and the poorest among us. And we do want accessible and affordable care for everyone. So what are the best ways of going about doing that? If we started today, I don't think we well, would build Well, hold on a second. System. I, I want to I push you on that a little bit, because if we say the most vulnerable among us, I mean, isn't that kids? Well, it's not. So let's take New York, for example. New York's CHIP program covers up to about 400% of poverty. And so this particular program is not exactly what lawmakers had in mind when they were trying to provide for those children who could not otherwise access health insurance coverage. You know, there is this big kind of philosophy of government question that underpins all of this, which is, does government have an obligation to provide care for children, for the poorest of the poor. Um, How do we look at that? How do you look at that? So I think that we as a society have made a determination that we do want to provide a safety net for the most vulnerable among us. I think that what's really important to keep in mind, though, are the perverse incentives that are in place that provide states far more money in terms of dollar-for-dollar matches for expansion populations or under CHIP, which are children, but not necessarily the neediest of the children, basically putting those who might be able to meet their needs in other ways in the front of the line over those most vulnerable, who we do want to provide a safety net for those individuals. Naomi Lopez-Bauman, Director of Healthcare Policy at the Goldbunner Institute. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. The stories we tell and the conversations we have on Marketplace are important to make all of us smarter about the economy, how it works, and why it matters. 
It all comes back to our mission as a nonprofit news organization to help raise economic intelligence across the country. And now we're asking for your help in making this work possible. For as little as $5 a month, you can join us today as a marketplace investor. It's a way to directly support independent reporting and journalism you can trust. And the payoff comes in knowing you're helping educate and inform people about the economic forces that shape all of our lives. Donate today at Marketplace.org, and thanks. And now to the tax overhaul. It's a done deal, and the work of deciphering the new law for the public begins. The people on the front lines of that? Accountants. For some insight into what's going on in tax offices right now, we have Jonathan Gerber, a CPA based in Los Angeles. I asked him how his team has been preparing for the changes in the recent days. Well, as this bill was being drafted and revised and negotiated, our office kept up with the changes in real time. But once it was passed, we sat down in a room, all 24 CPAs in our office, and threw around hypothetical scenarios of our clients and how it would affect them on an individual basis. So we talked about how this would affect a doctor with his own practice or a sole proprietor with his own manufacturing company, or a screenwriter with their loan-out corporation. And all of those hypothetical situations were discussed among our CPAs so we could share ideas and best practices and collaborate so we could then share those thoughts with our clients as the calls came in. What have your clients been asking you? The typical question our clients are asking are, what should I do before year-end? Should I prepay my property tax bill? How is this going to affect me going forward? And we try to give answers as specifically as we can. But in reality, to give a very exact answer to any of these questions, we need to prepare a comprehensive tax projection. Right. But there are also some general rules of thumb that we can offer our clients. If someone's in AMT, in alternative minimum tax for 2017, then accelerating their property tax payment into this year won't help them. So deferring it until when they're due in April is the right answer because although they don't get a benefit this year, they won't get much of a benefit next year either, and at least they'll have the money in their own pocket for an additional four months. Well, your clients get you know one-on-one advice and prep from from you, but what changes for people who do their own taxes? Are, are there things that they should be thinking about right now? Looking back at 2016 tax returns, uh, your listeners should take a look on page two of the Form 1040 and see, are they in alternative minimum tax? That's just a very important uh, question for what they can do or should do between now and year end. And then they should think about whether they're going to be giving charity or having other deductions which will persist in the new tax regime that are greater than $24,000 for a married couple or 12000 for an individual. And if they are going to be um, having deductions in the new regime that are greater than 12000 or 24000 then there's a lot more flexibility in what they'll be able to do in the future, philanthropically, etc., But a a lot of what we're giving – a lot of the advice we're giving is really dependent on who the taxpayer is, where they live, and what their situation is. Are there things that people need to think about in the first few months of next year? 
Absolutely. People should be thinking about charitable giving and how they do that. People should be thinking about their entity formation if they're run. What is entity formation? Does that mean small businesses? Exactly. So small businesses have choices as to how they operate. They can be a sole proprietor or an S corporation or an LLC or a C corporation. And making that choice is going to be different going forward. And choices that people have historically made should be revisited. People should review their estate planning with the significantly increased estate planning exemptions. And people should look at their overall situation in light of the changes. Jonathan Gerber is a CPA based in Los Angeles. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Now, if there's one industry that says holidays more than any other, it's got to be toys. According to the market research group NPD, the toy industry is doing pretty well. Sales grew by 3% in the first half of 2017, and that's before you get to the holiday retail season. But the question is becoming less whether we're buying toys, but where we're buying them. Amazon, Walmart, your local neighborhood toy store, perhaps? This is a classic toy store. Uh, The kind of toys and games you remember from your childhood, and that would be if you're a grandma, looking back to that childhood, or, you know, those of us who grew up in the 70s and 80s, Um, and even some 90s kids are going to find some cool things here. That's Christine Johnson, the owner of Miracle Mile Toy Hall. It's an independent toy store in Los Angeles. I mean, we do double our business in November and December, so that's quite a big chunk of our yearly. Johnson opened the toy hall in 2013. And she feels, for the most part, it's doing pretty well. They recently moved to a bigger space, more centrally located. The business is now profitable, which all might sound a little odd given the woes plaguing brick-and-mortar stores. Woes often blamed on Amazon and e-commerce. After all, earlier this year, we saw... I'm a Toys R Us kid. Now facing a very grown-up problem, filing for bankruptcy and $5 billion in long-term debt. Overnight, Toys R Us filing for bankruptcy. Can you believe that? So what- Just ahead of the holiday rush, as you mentioned, Toys R Us did file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy late last night. So are we living in a retail landscape where a small independent store like Christine Johnson's has better lasting power than Toys R Us? According to Jonathan DiCarlo, production manager at the market research firm Ibis World, the answer is yes. E-commerce is simply more damaging to large toy stores. E-commerce is actually um, causing larger toy stores to decline. This is due to the fact that they're able to undercut larger toy stores, um, offering even lower selling prices. According to DiCarlo, in the past, big chains like Toys R Us could use their size to negotiate better deals with toy suppliers, and this let them sell at cheaper prices. Then... Amazon comes along and just is able to discount toys even further than that. So it was only a matter of time if they're just competing in terms of price against Amazon. They weren't going to last as is. But because of their size, most independent stores can't participate in a price war anyway which, according to DiCarlo, makes them well-adapted to surviving e-commerce. 
We notice that with independent toy stores, they opt to compete on the basis of quality rather than price. Basically, what that means is by specializing in the sale of higher-end um, premium toys, these companies can actually justify higher selling prices that boost their revenue and also preserves their margins. Back in the Miracle Mile toy hall, owner Christine Johnson partially agrees. Yeah, a lot of people would ask, especially in the beginning, how do you feel about Amazon being your biggest competitor? And I would always say, they're not. They're not my biggest competitor. I don't compete with online. I just don't. I'm a brick-and-mortar store. Uh, Maybe I'm competing with the toy store in the next neighborhood over, but um, we've never really thought of ourselves as competing with online sales. You just can't. We have to do our own thing. But where she disagrees with DiCarlo is on selling premium toys for higher prices. Johnson has found that, no, she can't compete with larger stores just by stocking better toys. It's not that simple. I went to another store in the area, a chain store, and I almost cried in the aisles because I saw a number of things that I had picked out for my store that I thought were so special. And I realized you you actually can't compete as well on, on that playing level. I mean, they have buyers going out just like me looking for unique items. Instead, Johnson has doubled down on making her toy store a multi-purpose space. In her new location, she has the room to host puppet shows, booster events, even book signings. She wants the toy store to be a bit more about people than products. And for now, that plan is keeping her afloat. I think we're making it every year. We're making it. Just barely, but we're making it. Yeah. This story was produced by Sean McHenry. Toy stores are, of course, where you can hopefully find this year's toy fads. I hereby declare to the Pokemon of the world, I will be a Pokemon master. <gasps> What's that? Me up. It's my Furby. Furby loves He smells like strawberry. And candy apple. Hi, my name is Teddy Ruxpin. Can you and I be friends? Some fads of years past. But what makes a toy fad anyway? That inscrutable bestseller that kids just have to have. To figure that out, I'm joined by Jackie Breyer, editor-in-chief of The Toy Insider. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Can you define what makes a toy a fad toy? Like, what makes it grip the imagination? In my mind, a toy fad is something where demand surpasses supply. Everyone's got to have it. They've got to have it now, especially during the holiday season. You can't find it. You're going crazy. Parents are scrambling to make sure they get one for their kid. Is it a product of, like, organic supply and demand, or how much of this is companies kind of playing with the supply chain or the way things end up in a retailer? A lot of times, yes, the initial marketing factor can be a bit of a manufacturer's kind of ploy to get things going. But in general, when it comes to the actual supply, manufacturers do generally want there to be enough product so there's not a lot of disappointed children for the holidays. And sometimes you just don't see that fad coming out of left field and you just can't keep up. Well, that's one of the things I wonder about. What are the characteristics that makes a great fad toy? In this day and age, a great fad toy, first of all, is seated online, social media, YouTube. Kids are seeing unboxing videos, and they just have to have it. 
But the hot trends that we see are something that's affordable for a kid with pocket change. You know, like collectibles are huge right now. The blind bags, the surprise packs. These are things that kids can bring with them to school and they're showing on the playground and they're trading their doubles, which we saw with Shopkins and now we're seeing with LOL Surprise and things like that. You're like totally speaking a language I don't even understand. <laughs> it's just the next big tra- – I did bring some fingerlings. Yeah, you, wanna- I, you brought things with you. So what did you bring? So fingerlings are the hot toy of this holiday season. It's a little monkey. They also have unicorns and sloths. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. so the, there are these little monkeys that fit. They wrap around your finger, right? I brought us each one. So they're super cute and adorable. <laughs> so they're cute. Kids love them. They're $14.99 at retail, so they're affordable for most people. But you can't really always find them. And people are buying online. They're spending more than they should. You know, that's a concern for the manufacturer. That's a concern for a lot of people. How has the production of the fad toy or maybe the business of the fad toy changed as the supply chains have changed? I mean, this is not the supply chain environment of the 1980s anymore. Well, no, because you can find there's so many different ways to find the product. You know, when we were kids and our moms wanted to find us a cabbage patch, they stood outside of Toys R Us till the truck came in and they pulled them off the pallets. Right. (laughs) And, you know, people still do that. But you can also buy one on eBay or on Amazon. There's so many more inputs for a child today. Trends move faster now Hmm. just with the communication. So it sounds sort of like the process has been democratized a little bit. Yeah, I would say so. And I mean, I did bring, you mentioned the the prices are lower. I yeah. do have some other fun things with me if you'd like to see. I would like to see them. Go <laughs> okay. ahead. So one of the biggest trends is collectibles. And I brought a variety for you. And What is a collectible? So a collectible is something, see this says right on it, collect them all. I brought Squish Delish. So this encompasses two trends. One trend being kids love anything in blind packaging. If it's a surprise and kids don't know what it is, they have to have it. Hmm. So I brought this for you to open. And it's also a slow-rising squishy toy, which is huge. Every kid has on their wish list this holiday. A squishy toy. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna give us a second. Let want to open this thing. Open that up. Squishy delish. Okay. Oh, it's like a giant pink marshmallow. <laughs> give it a sen- uh, sniff. They smell like things. They're like food based. So this one. Donuts. Yep. Okay, and it I says brought donuts one. on it. <laughs> I brought one that looks like uh, French fries. Mine's already open here. But check out when you put you smush it, and then it slowly rises back to shape. So it's almost like a stress ball for adults, but for kids, they're obsessed. And also slime was a huge trend this year. I did bring you some slime as well. Okay. Of course. So the one I brought is called Slimy Goop. Oh, okay. So (laughs) So for this one, you could stick the unicorns. It comes with some glitter and some beads. So you're really upping the whole tactile (laughs) sensation. (laughs) You know, you could kind of sit here and do your show and just squish slime all day. Jackie Breyer, Editor-in-Chief of The Toy Insider. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Can you put a price on nostalgia? For some people, that's their business. And business is good. Like, 
Last year, we grew about 150% over the previous year, and this year, we're, we're about the same. That's Patrick Klima, owner of Wyco Vintage, and the market he's talking about is vintage rock t-shirts. The hottest stuff around now has to do with these sounds. Would you was Nirvana, The Breeders, Oasis, grunge and guitar rock bands from the 90s, for those of you who did not go to high school when I did. Plenty of people who never saw those bands now wear t-shirts with their names, faces, and logos, and it's driving original t-shirt prices into the hundreds and thousands of dollars. My name is James Applegath, founder of Defunct.com. Defunct is an online community for collectors of authentic vintage t-shirts. Both Applegath and Klima agree that the 90s rock shirt thing that's huge right now got a boost from the same unlikely place. So you've got Justin Bieber wearing a Nirvana shirt. Justin Bieber wore a heart-shaped box shirt. A bunch of uh, 18 to 25-year-olds think that's cool. And that kind of set it off, I guess. That led people into, well, what other really rare Nirvana shirts are there out there? How can I stand apart from somebody trying to kind of flex with with this shirt. I think it kind of gets out of control for some people. <laughs> that shirt went from being a pretty common $50 buy on eBay to seven, eight, nine hundred dollars all day long. I mean, that's what people pay for that. It, it got driven so hard by celebrity. You certainly don't have to be a fan of the band, I guess, is part of the trend. You see, you know, different artists like Travis Scott or Chris Brown wearing a shirt or Justin Bieber, you know, and then it all of a sudden sparks interest. Most of the 90s stuff is really coming on strong. You know, your standard, like, 90s Smashing Pumpkins. The world is a vampire. Uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Kanye West wore a typo negative shirt, and um, I'm pretty certain most Kanye fans aren't really familiar with typo negative, but, you know, I'm, I bet you they got some Google searches out of that. The internet is everything for us. Um, we sell... 99.9% of, of all of our shirts go through our website. Um, you know, they start around anywhere from 100 bucks, and, you know, depending how rare um, that particular version of a shirt is, you know, you can get up into uh, the thousands pretty quickly. Most collectibles you can't wear, right? I mean, you can't put a, <laughs> you can't wear a comic book. But with the t-shirt, getting to wear it and kind of knowing that it's, you know, been places, stuff like that's really special. You can sport it around <laughs> when you go out for the night. It's kind of fashionable. Those 90s shirts, though, if you remember, they're all like kind of oversized and, and just really large shirts. A guy or a girl could wear that shirt as opposed to a shrunken up 70s or 80s shirt that only somebody that has a smaller frame could actually fit into. 
you know, pre-94, you got the pre-NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. And I know this probably sounds kind of nerdy, but a lot of the shirts prior to that were made in the USA, and they were high-quality shirts. The older ones are, are more comfortable than the ones that were coming out in, in the early 2000s, that's for sure, just because of the fabric blend. You know, today, a lot of the shirts you get, they're always printed on these, you know, 100% cotton shirts. They look like they would, like, fit a Lego person. They're all boxy and just, they're... They're not quality. Whenever somebody passes, there's pretty much a run on that artist's shirts. I mean, they kind of disappear. I remember the morning that Bowie passed away. I just woke up that morning, and you know, you look at your phone when you wake up, and I have all of these notifications that David Bowie shirts had sold. And I immediately was like, oh no. I, I just kind of knew that that he had died. I had this David Bowie Shoko uh, shirt from the early 70s that I sold years and years ago, and um, I've regretted it ever since, and I've never seen another one, and um, that's probably, that's the one I, got, I let get away. <laughs> You've got people that are obviously aware now that these shirts are worth money, and so I think it's, it, kind of creates interest and people are digging them out and looking for them even more than they used to. That was Patrick Klima of Wyco Vintage and James Applegath of Defunct.com. And that story was produced by Peter Balanon-Rosen. Have a favorite t-shirt that's cool again? Tweet us a photo. We want to see it. We're at Marketplace WKND. You can blame Bing Crosby if dreaming of a white Christmas feels de rigueur. But in the U.S., there's only a 5% chance of snow on the holiday overall, which means a lot of places have to fake it. And that's good business for companies like Powder Pack International, where fake snow starts at about $4.25 a square foot. I'll let the CEO tell you about it. My name's Mark Trendley. I'm the owner of Powder Pack International. Powder Pack is a synthetic snow surface that was designed to simulate snow. You can use it for snow tubing, tobogganing, skiing. Powder Pack is made from a special machine uh, loop process. It's made out of polyethylene and a polyurethane backing, uh, which provides a soft surface. Powder Pack is known for having the most snow-like appearance. Its durability makes it good not only for permanent year-round setups. We install it in a lot of temporary systems, like right now we just finished uh, Snow Days LA, which is an event that's uh, next to Dodger Stadium, where the, every year they do a tubing event along with uh, festivities they have there for winter. It varies from year to year, but we typically sell close to 20,000 square feet of artificial turf every year. That was Mark Trendley from Powder Pack International, and that story was produced by Eliza Mills. life without numbers. We are a fan of those little digits on this show. So 
Here is a holiday edition of News by the Numbers with Marketplace's Tony Wagner and Paulina Velasco. Tony, start us off. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is... 90 million. That's how much it costs Netflix to produce Bright, its latest feature-length film starring Will Smith. The movie is the first of over 80 films the streaming service plans to release in the next year as it prepares to lose Disney properties. The movie is also a flop, as in, don't even look at the Rotten Tomato score. It is not pretty. But it's already been greenlit for a sequel. 200. That's the percentage stock the Long Island Iced Tea Corps increased at the open of trading on Thursday. Why? Because it's rebranding itself as Long Blockchain Corp. Blockchain is in the technology behind Bitcoin. Wait, so the Iced Tea Company is becoming a tech company? Looks like it. The CEO said they are quote-unquote pivoting their business strategy. But they'll still sell beverages, so take a sip. Four. Dogs are four times more likely to get chocolate poisoning during the Christmas period than any other time in the year. Ah, for real? Yeah, researchers at the University of Liverpool released a study in Vet Record this week about the perils of holiday merrymaking for our canine buddies. Is there more chocolate available this time of year than any other? That doesn't sound right. No, and curiously enough, chocolate exposure for dogs is not as high on Valentine's Day or Halloween. Maybe we just eat more chocolate this time of year. Maybe. Now, that's a study I want to hear about. On last week's show, we talked about how self-driving car technology could be applied to wheelchairs. Gee, maybe it's a missed opportunity for people who are elderly and disabled. Some of you reached out with your comments on the hidden costs of living with a disability. Like Carolyn Carroll from San Francisco, she called our voicemail. She lives with type 1 diabetes and said, I spend an incredible amount of money monthly on drugstore purchases such as bandages, wound care, even paper tape. It really adds up. These are expensive extremes for people like me who suffer from pressure ulcers. You can contact us about anything you hear on the show. Our email is weekend at marketplace.org. You can leave us a voicemail, 1-800-648-5114. And you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Marketplace WKND. And if you listen to this show via podcast, leave us a review. It helps other people find us. Thanks. Listen, I bought a Porg for Christmas, so I am definitely buying into The Last Jedi hype. And as of last weekend, the movie had made nearly $600 million, with more clearly yet to come. But Star Wars is kind of an outlier this season. The big movie studios haven't had the greatest year, and they traditionally count on the holiday season to round out their balance sheets. So I asked Meg James, the corporate media reporter for the Los Angeles Times, how this year compares to the past. Well, I think this year there's a lot of pressure on the television networks and on the movie studios to sort of end the year with a bang. It's been a rocky year, although there have been quite a few last-minute movie hits specifically Star Wars, that is really propelling the box office and Disney's um, studio. Yeah, I mean, how big of a deal is Star Wars? Can we view Star Wars as part of a trend, or is Star Wars its own singular phenomenon? 
Well, I think it's a little bit of both. It's it's definitely a juggernaut of the first order. Um, I, it, <laughs> no well, pun intended. <laughs> no pun intended. Although I should say that there was, and also it's it's helping sort of prop up the um, the, the studio box office because. Year over year, we've been losing a little bit in, in ticket receipts. So studios, for a number of reasons, you know, want to finish the year off with a bang, primarily because there are more moviegoers, of course, but also to help their own standing in, in the box office wars. You know, when I think about ways to spend money, um, it, it really is debatable whether you want to go pay for a ticket or put on your sweatpants and stream something. And I guess I'm wondering... Do you think the studios have adapted to that environment in a way that is strong enough to protect their bottom lines? No, and, and really and truly, that's the key issue for 2017, and it will be the key issue next year as well. The studios are scrambling um, to try to figure out how to put more butts in the seat in the movie theaters, the the quality of the shows on the streaming services continues to excel this is becoming the real fight for survival in Hollywood, is how do these legacy companies adapt to this fast-changing universe? It seems like, from my personal experience, that one of the ways that companies are trying to capitalize on this moment is the big themed release, you know, for streaming around the holidays, like the Gilmore Girls reboot or, you know, something that's maybe a holiday movie that is available for a limited time. Are they taking advantage of this window in a way that makes them money? Um, yes, it makes them money in that they're increasing their subscribers and therefore they'll keep the, the, the funds rolling into their companies. They'll increase their market cap. They'll be able to do more premium shows. They're, I think to answer your question – they're looking at this window as an, an opportunity when people are around, when people are talking to their family members, when people are saying, hey, what show have you seen? Hey, what about the you know marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon? Have you checked that out? I think that they've been very shrewd to look at just the consumption patterns. And, you know, blockbusters have become not only a thing for the movie studios and, and the box office, but it's also bled into the streaming wars. And, um, and even the television networks are trying to respond. Obviously, companies that stream things uh, have a fair amount of our data. They see what we watch, what we like, and that can be great as a viewer when you get recommendation preferences. But I'm wondering, when you think about this from a corporate standpoint, are companies more likely to create content that sort of scratches the itches they see from what viewers are streaming? Well, that's the strategy of Netflix and Amazon, they have gobs of, of consumer data. They know what you watch, when you watch it. Next year, I think, is going to be really interesting because we're going to see whether or not the government is going to allow um, at least one big merger, the AT&T consolidation of Time Warner, Time Warner, which owns HBO, CNN, TNT, Cartoon Network, Warner Brothers Studio. One of the reasons why AT&T wanted to buy Time Warner was because it wanted to better personalize advertising and sell advertising in a more efficient manner. Well, what does that mean? It means use a lot of this analytics that they get from your phone use, what you're, wa what you're watching on your phone, 
to sell advertising that is going to be um, more relevant to individual consumers. So when you start seeing on your your phone, you know, dog food ads, or you know, maybe you want this costume for your dog, or or some other more personal. Um, oh my God! It actually, I suspect that you have been privy to my data because those are the things I buy. <laughs> Oops. No. <laughs> I think when we start to see these ads sort of, you know, stalking us, and stalking's probably the wrong word, but trolling us, I think people are going to sort of say, hmm, you know, how much data do they really have? Well, it's a lot. One other trend that seems to figure pretty largely in both kind of network and studio thinking and also in streaming services is capitalizing on nostalgia and reboots of shows or reimaginations of things that that were popular in say the 80s or the 90s how profitable is this trend and and do networks do this especially in the holidays when we're sort of thinking about who we were as children Yes. And um, this has been a trend that's been building year after year. Um, Several years ago, Hallmark Channel um, started running movies, um, nostalgic movies in November and December, and they would have this huge rating spike. And for a while, all the other television networks would say, oh, Hallmark Channel, you know, it's so wholesome and and very un-Hollywood. But then they started realizing, well, shoot, you know, Hallmark Channel has something here. And they started loading up on, on um, classics. So it is a theme. They are making money on it. Um, probably not huge money, but enough if you can bring back something that's warm and familiar. You can make money on it, and you don't have to to have the risk of trying something new that might just fall flat and then lose money on that. Meg James covers the business of TV and movies for the Los Angeles Times. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lizzie, and and happy holidays to you. Here on the show, we like to talk to people in the spotlight, actors, writers, musicians, and chefs, about work and money. We call it the Marketplace Quiz. And with it being the holidays and the season of a lot of food, we have a pair of restaurant owners, starting with... Janet Zuccarini, owner and partner of Gusto 54 Restaurant Group. Evan Funky, executive chef and partner of Felix Trattoria. Fill in the blank. Money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you... More money. We need money to make money. So if you have money, you can make more money. So you can affect buy more money with money. Money buys you freedom. Ooh, that's good. Way better answer. (laughs) No, stop. In the next life, what would your career be? I would start a school for children, a new way of learning, teaching children about finances, how to make money, how to invest, how to save. Real life skills. Real life skills. I dig that. I wish I had that. <laughs> uh, I'd either be a firefighter or a jeweler. I love diamonds. Something about their creation through unimaginable pressure. It's kind of fascinating. What is something that you bought that you now completely regret buying? I don't buy a lot of things, so I don't own a lot of things. And when people come to my house, that's the first thing they say is, like, you don't have stuff. 
I spend my money mainly on experiences, traveling, things like that, food. I spend a lot of money on buying the best food that I can buy. When I buy something, I think about it a lot. And so I, I don't have any regrets that I, that I can think of right now. Tattoos. I started getting tattoos at like the second uh, I turned 18. And this is like in the 90s. So you can imagine. The tattoos today are amazing. Like have all this technology and everybody knows what they're doing. But I got my tattoos on Venice Beach boardwalk <laughs> in like the late, like early mid 90s. So you can imagine the uh, horror. <laughs> the, there's so much tribal. When did you realize that cooking could be an actual career for you? I think the, the second I set foot in culinary school. I knew in my mind, body, and soul that I was going to be a restaurateur. I had no idea how I was going to get there, but I knew there was something burning inside of me that I would do whatever it took to be the best. I lived in Rome for eight years, and that's where I, I found love with cooking for myself because I didn't have any money to eat out except I'd go to a lot of pizzerias. And my friends would tell me a lot that I should open up a restaurant. So that kind of put something in my mind, but I never thought I would ever do that. And my first restaurant fell into my lap. So I was, I was asked to become a partner in this restaurant. And, you know, two weeks later, I owned a restaurant. And I didn't realize that I married two passions, business and cooking and food. What is your most prized possession? My dog. <laughs> is that a possession? Sure. Can that be a possession? I don't know if Roma knows that, but I'm sure it can. <laughs> My dog, Roma. <laughs> my most prized possession. I think it's my cumulative skill. I am a, uh, a culmination of mentorship. I think that's what I prize most in life. What was your very first job? <laughs> oh, man, so embarrassing. I was a towel boy at a gym so gross. My father was Italian and Italians put their kids to work so I started working for him as a 12 year old and he brought the first espresso machine into Canada so he introduced coffee culture. So I was working trade shows introducing people to this new beverage that no one had ever heard of and times have certainly changed but that was my first job. What is something that everyone should own no matter how much it costs? Okay, I'm just gonna I'm gonna go I'm it. gonna go for like an Evan answer, which is super ethereal and poetic. But everyone should own their own destiny. Ooh, that's good. That's good. I would say fulfillment. No matter what it costs. I wanna feel fulfilled when I when I take my last breath, I wanna feel fulfilled that I left it all on the field. What's your favorite thing to eat or cook during the holidays? Well, so the Funkies, we created a tradition about 10 years ago to make pizza on Christmas because it's Christmas colors, red, white, and green. And ever since I went to culinary school and was at the back end of 99, it's been like indentured servitude that I have to cook. So I've cooked literally every single holiday festive gathering since then, which is almost coming up on 20 years. So we make pizza. It's easy on me, and it's festive. In my household, my father was mainly the kind of the cook, the chef, and taught my mother how to cook. My mother is German, and you know, my father was Italian. 
And uh, it, was, it was always based around pasta. And sometimes he would get fancy and do like a linguine with a spicy tomato sauce and a whole lobster on top. Um, and that would basically be it. But we always, always, always had lasagna made from scratch. And that for my mom would just be an all-day affair. And we would have just one dish. We'd be like a one-dish wonder. It'd be like lasagna with like maybe some rapini on the side. Usually a classic lasagna with a spinach noodle and like a bolognese sauce and bechamella. And that would be, uh, yeah, every, you know. I'm going to make that the new tradition. <laughs> you have to. Oh, man. Skip out on pizza and go for lasagna. You can listen to past editions of the Marketplace Quiz, Linda Cardellini, Pusha T, and more. Just go to marketplace.org. Next week on Marketplace Weekend, as the year draws to a close, we bring together experts to talk about possible solutions to workplace harassment. It's a comprehensive approach that includes education, monitoring, quick resolution, and real-world market sanctions. Plus, we look back on your favorite stories from 2017, including why we've fallen out of love with chain restaurants. And for a show coming up in the new year, Resolutions. What are some of yours? And just how much will you spend to make good on those goals? Email us, we're weekend at marketplace.org, or leave us a voicemail, 1 800 648 5114. And that is it for this Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced by Peter Balanon Rosen and Eliza Mills, with help this week from Sean McHenry and Paulina Velasco. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer, Drew Jostad is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Naren Rao. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. Marketplace Weekend is supported by Progressive Insurance, protecting commercial vehicles and offering specialized coverages designed to protect small businesses. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. This is APM.